I don't get a chance to visit churches very often um, because I'm always here. So every once in a while when I'm out of town, I mean, I love it. In fact, I've told some of you this, that when I'll go somewhere for the weekend and I'm not preaching, I will like try to go to an early service at one place, a later service at another. I just, I love, I love going to church. I love it. And um, it's ridiculous. I know because I I talk to my family. I'm like, hey, we're, you know, we're going on vacation. How many services do you guys want to go to? Zero. Um, but I, I went to this church. I was, uh, I was uh, at a family wedding. We were in um, Brooklyn, New York, and we went to this church service. Uh, some, some friends uh, go there, and it's the first time I'd ever been there. And I walk I- into the, the main area, and there was nobody greeting at the door. And I thought, this is just a little insight into my personality. It's just a little peek behind the curtains. And I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the, the greeter this morning. At this church I've never been to with people I've never met. You know, it, it is as awkward as you would have guessed it would be. It was, it was very awkward because I was standing at the, do- at the door and I was like, people would come in. I'd be like, hey, welcome to church. You know, and I, I was, you know, overdoing it a little bit because I was like, I'll never see these people again. Welcome to church. And the people who the regulars, they were like looking at me like, who is this guy? You know, like what is going on? What is, what is happening here? But I, you know, I wanted them to be excited about being at church. So I guess my point is if you're a visitor today, feel free to greet at the door. It's totally fine. We, we love having you. We've got a, we got a weird mix of people. We're so glad you're here. We, we transported a bunch of our church family and they're off who knows where doing who knows what. And we got a new face, a bunch of new faces. So if you look at somebody and they're not being as excited or, or friendly, they're probably also a, a visitor. So we're glad you're here. Very glad you're here. I, uh, I don't know if, again, this is probably my personality, and that's one of the dangers of like using an illustration that, that plays more to who I am than you know maybe something universal. But when I get a little bit of downtime, and you have some downtime around the holidays, when I get a little bit of downtime, I get really aspirational in terms of my goals. So I'll, I'll be sitting on the couch, and I can only do that for so long, and then I'll be like, hey, family, you know what? Let's, uh, well, let's go clean the garage. Let's, you know, let's remodel the kitchen. You know, big goals that take planning and thought. And I'll just be sitting on the couch, and I'll be like, let's spring up and go do it. And my family has gotten used to this, and my wife will kind of like tell the kids, like, just hold off for about 15 minutes. He's going to lose enthusiasm here real quick. And she's right, because what happens is I'll go out in the garage, and I'll be like, all right, I'm excited. It's going to be a new year. We're going to finish 2019 off right with a brand new garage. It's going to be awesome. And I'll get out there, and I'll look at this pile that I've created over the last, you know, 12 months, and I'll be like, hmm, it is I need a dumpster. I don't have a dumpster. I need to, maybe I need some, I need some garbage bags. We probably don't have enough garbage bags. And I'll just like start to spin out and think of all the things that I need that I don't have and I'm not ready to do. And then I'll be like, you know what? You know what sounds good is going back down into the family room and watching a little Netflix. That's what sounds good. And it takes me about 15 minutes or so to go through that whole process. Now, some of you are super organized, and you've got it figured out, and you've got a plan, and you know when you're doing it, and the family's all on board. It's very, you know, like sound of music, you know, the whistle, everybody lines up. Some of you are like that, but I think a lot of us fall into one of two categories. Some of you are like me. You get all excited, and you get a lot of energy for about 10 minutes, and then you're kind of back to square one. And some of you know how the story unfolds, and you're sitting on the couch, and you're eating chips, and you're thinking, man, I really should go exercise, or I really should, you know, 
whatever the goal is. I should clean the garage. I should do whatever. But you know yourself well enough to know, you know what, I'm not. I'm going to get started and I'm not going to finish and that's going to make me feel guilty. So I can either eat chips on the couch now or in about two hours I can be eating chips on the couch. And so I'm just going to skip the whole process. And you know yourselves well enough to know that you're not going to like just like dig down and stick with it. Now, this isn't, you know, I'm not, we're not talking about New Year's resolutions. We're not talking about anything like that. But what we're talking about is this weird sort of disconnect between the things that we would like to accomplish, the things that we would like to achieve, and the things that are actually going to happen. We were talking a little bit about this in class this morning with the, with the youth group. And just this weird, it's so strange to think that inside me is this really idealistic, aspirational, energetic human. And then also inside me is someone who is opposed to that person. And that person annoys them. And they can't, they don't seem to be able to get along. There's this weird disconnect between the things that we want to do and the things that we do. And I think that this is no more, more uh, evident than in our discipleship, than in our relationship with God. The, the fact that there are, there are parts of our lives that we would love to see transformed and changed and renewed. There are virtues that we would like to put on. There are bad habits that we'd like to take off. And these things have been kind of part of who we are, sometimes for years, sometimes decades. And they're just, they're part of that. Of that. And sometimes we get excited and we're like, you know what? This year is the year that I'm going to be more patient or more generous or more kind or I'm really going to, whatever it is. And, but we also know that there's something inside us that's going to push back against that. This disconnect between what we want to do and the things that we do. I think at the very heart of this dilemma is this question that we're going to try to circle around a little bit today. And the question is this. What is it going to take? What is it going to take? And so what I'm hopeful for is that as we leave this morning, that question is kind of like reverberating in our minds a little bit. What is it going to take? Because any achievement is not about the one decision. Anything that we do is not about just saying, I'm going to do that thing. There's so much more that goes into it. For example, if your desire is like, well, you know, I'm going to start exercising more. Well, the exercise requires decisions about waking up earlier. And that requires decisions about going to bed on time. And that requires decisions about not watching another episode of TV. And so your whole morning is scuttled every time you press, yeah, I'll watch the next episode. Because it's not just about waking up in the morning and going running or working out or whatever it is. It's about what you did the night before. It's about what you weighed in. It's about all the other choices that go into that moment to make that decision. Any achievement is the culmination of this whole domino effect of decisions. And so this is why this question is so important. What is it going to take? What is it going to take? If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to 1 Corinthians. I'll have it on the screen. Open up your phones, whatever you need to do. Fire them up. Turn the volume down. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The 1 Corinthians is a fascinating book for a variety of reasons. I mean, it just feels like if there's any church controversy, it somehow traces its way back to 1 Corinthians somewhere. It's an amazing book. Um, and it's sometimes a confusing book. But it, it is written, 1 Corinthians is written to a bunch of underachievers. In other words, there was this church and they could have been doing so much more. They could have been doing so much better, but they weren't. And Paul writes them this letter that at times is like, 
It's all over the place. Sometimes Paul is sarcastic in this letter, and we don't get it because we can't hear the tone. We're just reading the words of the text. But he's sarcastic. He's like, oh, you guys think you're so awesome. Yeah, well, we're just lowly, humble apostles over here, says stuff like that. He's just like, I mean, he is so like brutally clear with their shortcomings and their problems because he knows that they can do better. Now, right in the middle of this book, almost if you were to, you know, if you were to train for the next three years, learn Greek, memorize the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, and you were to like stop exactly halfway through the book, you would come upon this one passage. And I only point that out because a lot of times biblical authors like to, to center their thesis right in the middle of the book. They do it differently than we do. We like the headline. We just want to get a real quick idea of what's this author saying. Give me the headline, three or four words. But biblical authors like to put their thesis. They like to bury it right in the middle of their work. So their whole book is kind of working up to this one major point, and then everything else kind of spins off of that. It's often what they do. I don't know exactly if that's what Paul was doing, but right directly in the center of this book is this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. And I love this first question. It's a rhetorical question. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? Do you know that? Yeah, Paul, we, we, we know how races work. All, yeah, all the runners run. But only one gets the prize. And he's probably, you know, this was potentially around the time when the ancient Olympics were taking place. And that's on everybody's mind. Everybody's thinking about, you know, they got whoever on the front of the Wheaties box. And everybody's thinking about the Olympics that are taking place. Everybody's thinking about the games. You know how in a race, you know how a race works. Yes, Paul, we know how a race works. Only only one runner wins. We get it. We totally understand what you're talking about. And there's, there's some sarcasm. You can kind of get that there. And he goes, you know how not everyone wins, right? It's almost like the anti-participation awards all the way back 2,000 years ago. And I, I like the idea of participation awards. I think it's good. These kids are too young to worry about, like, who's the most awesome, who's the best. Participation awards are awesome. But we're fooling ourselves if those kids don't know who won the race. They know. You, everybody may get a little medal at the end, but the kids know who came in first. You may not be keeping score on that soccer field, but there's some kids who are keeping score, and they know that they dominated that other team, even if they're only four years old. They know. I applaud the goal of the participation awards, but kids, everybody, when we're competing, we just know. We know which team scored the most goals. We know how that works. We know that there's a runner who gets the prize. And Paul says, run in such a way as to get the prize. All right, man, Paul, you would have been an amazing athletic trainer. All right, here's our plan, guys. We're going to start this race, and we're going to run so that we win. Well, can you give me a little bit more than that? Yeah, let's score more points than the other team. Okay, Paul, that sounds wonderful. That sounds great. Run in such a way to get the prize. Are you saying run faster than everybody else? That sounds good, but that's not exactly what Paul's getting at. He's talking about something much broader than just running the fastest that you can. He's talking about the way that you participate and the way that you engage in this race. Imagine with me, 2020 is going to be an Olympic year, and imagine with me, for whatever reason, you get to go to the Olympics, and you get to go to the track and field event, and you get to, you get to witness the 100-meter dash, and you are decked out in your Team USA gear, you've got your Team USA hat, your Team USA coat, and your Team USA cowboy boots, or whatever, you've got, you are ready, you know, to cheer on Team USA, and there's some sort of injury before the race starts, and, 
And the runner for Team USA, he can't run. He's pulled a hamstring. Something has happened. And so the, the, the coaches and the trainers, they look up in the stands and they're like, who could we get to fill in for this race, this final race, to see who wins the gold medal? And they say, see you and you've got your Team USA gear and your flag and your face is painted and you've, you know, you don't have a shirt on, but you've got a USA painted on your stomach. And like that guy, that guy has some enthusiasm. We want that guy. And so they send a trainer up into the stands and they're like, hey, sir, would you be able to represent the U.S.? In the Olympics, in the 100-meter dash, yeah, I can do it. This will be awesome. You're full of adrenaline. You're so excited. And you go down there, and you got your cool USA cowboy boots on, and you stand there in the starting blocks, and you're looking at all these other runners, all these other racers, and the, the, the guy with the gun, the gun goes off. What is going to happen in this race? You are going to lose so badly that they're going to be handing out the medals as you're still crossing the finish line. That's how badly you're going to lose. Because it's not enthusiasm that is going to make you run fast. It is everything else that goes into winning a race. It's all the training and all the sleepless, uh, you know, the early mornings and the, and the late nights. It's everything else that goes into it to make it happen. Because running in such a way to get the prize isn't about trying your hardest in that moment. It's about everything that prepares us for that moment. Despite all your enthusiasm, you're going to lose badly. However, as ridiculous as that scenario is, that seems to be how we operate our spiritual lives. I know, God, this year I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be more relaxed and I'm going to be more easygoing. Okay, great, wonderful, good goal. That's awesome because that is something that you should aspire to as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Wonderful. What choices and decisions are you going to make to prepare you for that goal? Well, you know, I guess I, I, I don't know. I think I'm just going to wait until I get into rush hour construction traffic and see what happens. I'm just going to wait till they call me down from the stands and it's time for me to run the race. That's all. That's what I'm going to do. But that's the way that we approach our spiritual life. It's ridiculous. Of course we're going to fail. Of course we're going to find ourselves in a moment where things aren't going right and our expectations for Christmas dinner are just right. But then this uncle did this and this aunt said that and that in-law didn't do the thing that they were supposed to do or they got a ridiculous gift and you told them not to buy stuff like that or whatever it is. And in the moment, what's going to happen? You're not going to be able to run the race because you haven't prepared yourself for the race. You are not running in such a way as to get the prize. I used to think that as I got older, I would just naturally become more mature. When I was a kid, I thought that. I was like, yeah, old people, they're all mature. Turns out you're not. But I thought that's just how it worked. I would just get older and I would just kind of grow up and things would just like lock into place and it would all make sense. And, 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 I, and I'm thinking back on this now, this is so ridiculous because imagine this is my plan for maturing as a, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So if I'm hearing you correctly, Patrick, you're saying this is your plan. You do nothing, time passes, and you'll actually grow to be more like Christ. That's the plan. It's a terrible plan. And what I've found is that as we grow older, we just grow older. We get more wrinkly, but we have the same struggles, same problems, the same issues. Because time just didn't solve everything. And so the question is, what is it going to take? 
Paul goes on to explain this question. He says in verse 25, he goes, listen, it's not going to happen magically. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. There's a phrase that doesn't sound very good. I really liked basketball when I was in high school. I like it now, but I really liked it when I was in high school. And when I was in high school, I was very uh, aspirational. I thought, man, you know, I could, I could play basketball for my high school basketball team. And then our coach said, hey, if you really want to prepare yourself for the basketball season, here's what you need to do. You need to sign up for the soccer season. What? I don't, I don't like soccer. Well, this is what you need to do because they'll get you in shape for basketball season. Okay. So I show up the morning of the soccer tryouts, and the first thing the coach has us do is he has us sign this clipboard. You write your name down. I'm interested in being on the, the soccer team. And, you know, it was a small enough school that there's probably a good chance you're going to make it, even if you just kind of stood on the sidelines the whole time. But he says, all right, the first thing we're going to do, guys, is we're going to go running. All right, fine. You know, 17 years old, I can, I can do this. Turns out I, I could not do that. And we went running, and, you know, we ran a quarter of a mile, and I'm like, can't breathe, and but I really want to play basketball, and I really want this to happen, and I just, like, I'm trying to keep up with all the other guys, and I'm starting to get that feeling, you know, like where you run too much, and you're going to maybe throw up because you've not exercised like this in a while. And I remember running, and we probably ran maybe a mile, and we finally got back to the clipboard, and I, like, hobbled back over to the clipboard, and I took that pencil, and I erased my name. I do not want to do the strict training. It's not what I'm interested in. I'm just interested in the results. But I don't want to do what it takes. And Paul says everyone who competes in these games goes into strict training. And he's talking about everything that goes into giving someone the competitive edge, the science that goes into the caloric intake and the types of foods that they eat to make sure they get the, the right nutrients and the brutal workouts and the routines, that every type of muscle, muscles we don't know we have, muscles we don't want to ever use. It's constantly going to bed on time, getting up on time. It's the fact that their world orbits around this goal. Their whole world is organized around this idea that I want to be the very best that I can be. I will do what it takes. So, you want to be more generous or kind or patient. Let's, let's just use generous as an example. Well, generosity requires financial margin because it's tough to be generous if you're constantly... Uh, putting money on your credit card. You're constantly straining your, your, your budget. So financial margin requires trimming your budget a little bit, requires cutting some things out. Budgeting requires things like, well, you know, maybe I won't go out to eat six times this week because I need to save a little bit of money because my goal is to be generous. And not eating out requires shopping and cooking at home. And cooking requires extra time in your day. And time requires you uh, uh, able to not scroll mindlessly on Facebook. And so here you are saying, I'm going to be more generous, but I'm not doing any of the training that it's going to require for me to get there. I'm not doing any of the things that I need to do to become that type of person. And I bet you never thought about like, oh, Facebook is going to keep me from being a generous person. Your pathway may be different. Your ideals, your goals may be different, but it's the same concept that we're not centering everything in our lives around this idea, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to ask myself the question, what is it going to take? Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. 1 Corinthians 9.25, they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. 
They literally gave out, the award that they gave out at the ancient Olympics was just an olive branch that they kind of like, they, they braided up. And like, you won, you're the fastest human in Greece, there you go. You get the olive uh, branch that's made a little, into a little crown. And I don't know, I, I don't know how long something like that would last, but it's going to end up, you know, turning into dust in somebody's garage. Because it doesn't last. Well, I know it's the glory and all that, but it doesn't last. But we do it. To get a crown that will last forever. Amen. And what Paul is saying is he's saying we're giving up or we're making sacrifices now to gain something later. We're making sacrifices now so that we achieve something later. We do this backwards. We sacrifice later to gain something now. Let me give you a couple of examples. Most of you know that there's two versions of us. There's a, there's a now and a later version. Worst candy in the world, by the way, the now and laters. But there's two versions of us. The, there's the now version. And the now version thinks, wow, you know what? Uh, he thinks a lot of, of, of then Patrick. So now Patrick is like, hey, it's, uh, it's Christmas. I'm going to eat, you know, three pounds of Christmas cookies for breakfast. That, because... I'm really trusting in later Patrick to, to go running and do a little bit of exercise. Later Patrick, man, he's got it figured out. Now Patrick's going to have fun. He's going to indulge. He's going to enjoy himself because later Patrick's going to take care of business. Now Patrick's going to have a good time. Later Patrick is going to like buckle down and do what needs to be done. Now Patrick is going to like, you know, I'm just now Patrick's going to hit the snooze a couple times. Later Patrick, man, he's going to read his Bible and he's going to pray. Now Patrick's going to watch a couple extra episodes of something, but later Patrick, he's going to get up early. So now Patrick thinks a lot of later Patrick. But the problem is, is once it becomes now, you're stuck with the same person and there's now Patrick again. All of a sudden, all your weaknesses and shortcomings and struggles, you brought them right with you in time. It's the same old Patrick. Back in uh, 1836, we all remember very clearly, an economist by the name of N.W. Sr. had this quote. And I just, I want to promise you, I had not read the book, but I came across the quote, read the page that the quote was on, and then felt pretty good about myself. But I loved this quote that he wrote about, and it was just about like how to like just do better at life, and particularly financially, just how to be a better, uh, how to save money. This is what he said. He goes, to abstain... From the enjoyment which is in our power to not eat the three pounds of Christmas cookies or to seek distant rather than immediate results are among the most painful exertions of the human will. And what he's saying is, for now, Patrick, to buckle down and do what needs to be done and not just put everything on later, Patrick, is tough. It is tough. He's absolutely right. And he was just talking about money, but he stumbled onto this, this important spiritual truth about that we, we do what we do to get a crown that will last forever. To, to achieve something in the future that we're going to be so grateful when we look back and we're going to say, I'm so glad that now Patrick said he was going to buckle down and do what needed to be done. That he was going to do what it takes. So grateful for that. What is it going to to take. 1 Corinthians 9, 26. Paul wraps up this section with this. He says, Therefore, I do not run like, like someone running aimlessly. 
I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. That's, that's extreme language. This is not the type of stuff that we often expect of ourselves. I strike a blow to my body. I make myself my own slave. That now part of me that says, oh, later we'll do it all. Don't worry about it. No, now we're going to get this figured out. We're going to do what needs to be done. We're going to do what it takes. It's so extreme though. But listen, maybe what needs to happen in your life is extreme. The, the, the word repentance, that's an extreme idea. To say that I'm going to stop what I'm doing and thinking and believing and the way that I'm behaving and that I'm going to completely turn it around, that is extreme. Repentance is extreme. Maybe you do need to take drastic measures in order to orbit your life around Christ. Maybe something extreme needs to happen. And I, maybe you need to cancel your Netflix because you cannot say no to next episode. Maybe you need to just like have someone cut up all your credit cards because you just cannot budget yourself. Maybe it needs to be extreme and that's okay. Maybe you need to change jobs because you cannot get it together. You cannot figure it out or you have some relationship on the job that is not healthy. Maybe you need to quit your job. But those are the types of extreme things that people do when they want to center their life around following Christ. Do we have what it takes? Well, here, here's, here's a proposal. How about I don't change anything and I just hope things get better? Well, then we'll be exactly where we are. It's an extreme, extreme measures. Paul's point is essentially this, that we just, we have to stop messing around. That's what his point is. We just stop messing around. Jesus said essentially the same thing in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. When you think about the, the extreme nature of what he's talking about, Jesus said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to follow me, he's got to deny himself. So he's got to tell now, Patrick, no, that's not what's going to happen. We're going to do what needs to be done. He must take up his cross daily and follow me. And then he talks about just a different way than what Paul said. But verse 24, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, loses his life for my sake, that's when he'll save it. Loses his life for my sake. What is it? going to take? I think this is a sobering question when you think about all its implications. But I I just want to put Christ's question to you. What sacrifices have you made to keep your life in line with Christ? What actual tangible sacrifices have you made? What have you done to deny yourself and follow Christ? Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to confess. Might as well do it at the end of the year. Finish off 2019 outright. Start 2020 well. Whatever it is. But what is it going to take? Let me wrap up in conclusion by very quickly saying three things. Number one, don't confuse small with insignificant. 
Because some of you are like, well, unless it's just incredibly drastic, and unless I'm just, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to give up eating for 40 days, then what's the point? No, don't confuse small with insignificant. Those small changes over the course of time add up to something big. Secondly, address your struggles, not your strengths. This is something for me, I suppose, probably not everybody else, but I like to be like, well, I'm not so bad in this area, so I'm just going to focus on that. Oh, well, what about all these other areas you need to get things figured out? And finally, and this is so important, and I cannot state this enough, but make plenty of room for grace. Make plenty of room for grace. For those of you that have tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed, sometimes you think like, well, you know, God, God, God's just gotten sick of trying to forgive me, and, and he hasn't. He hasn't. That's what he does. That's his thing. He loves to forgive. And he's not interested in you saying, well, God, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness this time because that's just too much. That's just too much. Back when I was a kid, um, uh, my parents were reminding me of this story. And I know I've shared part of it before, but when I was a kid, we were at some restaurant. And this was back before restaurants figured out that you should get free refills for everything. And uh, you couldn't, you just couldn't get free refills. And so my parents splurged. I was probably, I don't know, four or five years old. And, and they had let me get a hot chocolate and came in a cool glass. And I had whipped cream on top and a little cherry on top of that. And um, I, being, you know, whatever, three or four years old, I immediately spilled it. And I'm devastated. I'm crying. I'm so sad. I just hot chocolate. And there's no such thing as free refills. Like, this is, this is back in the, you know, the early 80s. They didn't believe in just giving away free refills. And the, the waitress came over, and she's like, oh, you know, saw the scenario, and she brought me another hot chocolate with whipped cream on top and a little cherry on top of that. And a little joy in my, my face. I'm so excited. It's so wonderful. Well, I didn't find this out until years later. I do remember the scenario, but evidently my dad then spilled that cup of hot chocolate. He's let me believe for the last 40 years that it was me. I've been living with that <laughs> burden. In that weight. But my dad spilled a cup of hot chocolate. And the waitress came back over. And she's like, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. It's fine. And she brought me another cup of hot chocolate and with whipped cream and a cherry on top. Well, you're never going to believe what happened. My dad spilled it again. Yeah. Spilled my hot chocolate again. Like, look, look at that guilty face. <laughs> And you know what they told the waitress? No, no, no. It's too much. You're being too kind. You're being too generous. It's too much. Don't bring him any more hot chocolate. Letting me believe I had spilled it. I just want you to know that you can spill the hot chocolate as much as you want with God. It doesn't mean that our sins don't matter. It doesn't mean that they're not a big deal. It doesn't mean that they don't have devastating consequences on ourselves and other people. But it means that the well of grace is endless. Make plenty of room for grace. Because we're never going to get better without it because we are going to fail. It's not the failing that's the big problem. It's the not trying again.